it's been three years since I've been here, and uh, I, I will never forget that last retreat we had together. And uh, driving away in with uh, my uh, my Volkswagen and with the U-Haul and the hitch to the back is indelibly etched in my mind and my memory. With kind of all my belongings there, and I, as I headed down to you know, Louisville, Kentucky, of all places. And uh, when I got there, I shared this with a few of you all. Uh, so I'm starting my academic program, and uh, they put me in a graduate doctoral housing with other doctoral students. And I got there around maybe 9 or 10, something late in the evening, and I had to unpack my stuff. And as I was unpacking my stuff, there was nobody around. But one person kindly helped me, uh, offered to help me move in, and so we're moving in. And about halfway through, with all my boxes, the, the, the guy said that, i got to stop, I'm getting dizzy. And I, and I realized that as doctoral students, that we might not have the most upper body strength as a group of people. And what I realized, though, right from the start, is it's mostly indoor work, what we do. And it was, we sit around alone in libraries and, and desks with books, away from people. And that has been the uh, source of limitless grief for me. And in some ways, limitless joy because of the things that I've been able to read and study in these past few years. And so with that said, um, whenever somebody who's kind of a more academically minded stands in a pulpit and says, this is going to be more of a lecture than a sermon, I, I try to be charitable, but I usually get a little critical, too, in sitting in the pew and say, so you didn't do the hard work of translating this into a message and we're just supposed to be okay with that. I've done a lot of work translating this into a message, and yet I have not stood here yet. I've workshopped this a little bit in churches before, but it's been a little bit of a time. And so now that as I have this material and I, sit, I stand here before you now, I realize this may not really connect. And so I promise you this is important, critical, and worth engaging. And so I'm asking that you would uh, track with me as I uh, open us up in a word of prayer. I thank you, Father, that you are always doing immeasurably more than we can ever think or imagine, that you are always beyond us, God, greater than us, outside of our boundaries and our constraints, infinite, God, in resources when we lack, and willing by grace and love to pour all of your riches into our poverty, so that you ask not for us strength and intelligence and talent, but you ask us the humility to come before you and ask. And we ask this day, Father, that we who are spiritually poor may be nourished by your riches. We who are spiritually hungry and thirsty may be fed by your bread of life. May it come through many varied sources, even as you work and minister to your people through many different ways, and we ask that, God, that you would speak even through the Cyruses of secular prophets. For we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Technology is always dodgy, so this may or may not work. So you know that. I mean, even look. It used to be over there, did it not? Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, um, okay. All right. Phew. This has been the pastoral question that has been governing all my studies as I pour through different books and work my way through rigorous things that are academic. And then yet, at the same time, always in the back of my mind has been this question. It's the reason why, actually, I went back to school in the first place. Because the question that has resonated in my pastoral experience probably more than any other is that when someone comes up to me and asks me, 
I go to church every week. I read my Bible. I'm part of a Bible study. I've sat and listened to preaching my entire adult life. And yet I know that God loves me. I know that God is infinite and great and glorious to be worshipped. Why don't I experience God in my daily life? And part of the reason why I went back to school, I've been studying these years, is because when I looked into kind of the historical record of how people and the saints have answered that question throughout history, it has been usually something along the lines of because God is hiding himself for a while in order to increase your faith. And the truth of that is without question, absolutely, that is an eminently biblical and true and profoundly pastoral thing to say, that there are seasons of dark nights of the soul by which God, for a time, removes the gifts and the glory and the joy of His presence so that our faith might increase and be strengthened and be patient and endure in our character. I have been unsatisfied with that answer and I thought there is much more to say, much more to discover, and I've spent my time in trying to do so. In answering this question, I've been digging in the past few years in the philosophical uh, uh, fossil record, as I'm calling it, and into something called phenomenology. And the thing is, I understand that already that word turns many of you off. Like, why would that be here in a sermon context? And I've also had that same approach and I've, as I've kind of tripped into phenomenology. And also, and I mean literally tripped into that because, not literally, metaphorically literally, is that that's not an easy word to say. I've had conversations with distinguished professor sitting on the other side of me as I'm talking back into the... I'm talking about ontology and epistemology, and all of a sudden the word phenomenon, and I feel like little Nemo when he's trying to say anemone, phenomenon, and I'm sitting here thinking, please don't think I'm an idiot. I'm really, really not. And that's it's not an easy word to say, but the reason why it's become important to me is because phenomenology is the branch of... I'm so proud of myself. It's the branch of philosophy that deals with, do you see what you believe and do you believe what you see or do you believe what you see and do you see what you believe? It's talking about what we perceive and not just by perception but through every single means of our experiential senses. Do you see, do you hear, do you taste, touch, experience the reality you believe in? In other words, if you believe that God is glorious, infinite, mighty, supreme, do you experience that phenomenologically? <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I actually sit home and practice in my room phenomenology, phenomenology, and I still will never get it right. So this man, Immanuel Kant, whether you are aware of him or not, have ever read a stitch of writing of his or not, has probably made more influence into the way that you think than probably maybe any other philosopher in the history of philosophy. He's credited with being the single greatest thinker of the Enlightenment. And as I read backwards and forwards, everybody after Kant is engaging with Kant, either negatively or positively, but everyone deals with this man. And his writing is so incredibly... I was going to say prodigious, but big. His writing is so immense that the thing is, is that whether you are actually in the humanities or whether you are in the sciences, he has influenced your thinking in some way or not without you knowing it. And this is what he writes in the Critique of Pure Reason. He says, the possibility and therefore also and especially the impossibility of a phenomenon is ordered by the measure of the power of knowing that is concretely the measure of the play of experience and of the concept within a finite mind. That's a lot of words to say something very simple, I think. 
is that nobody has direct experience of the world. Absolutely nobody, whether you are a Christian or an atheist, nobody has unfiltered view, unfiltered experience of the world, but it is a combination of your experience and what is he calls concept within the boundaries of a finite mind. So experience and concept creates your entire structure of what you and I call reality. So to say something like time is that we experience one sequence of event and then we experience another sequence of events. That's not direct engagement with time. We are calling this thing where we have one thing happen and another thing happen as the sun, as the earth rotates around the sun and it spins around its axis. We call that time because of a concept that we have created called time. And right from the beginning, I want to say that I'm not talking about pluralism. I'm not talking that reality is not concrete. It is. But our experience of it as finite people who do not know everything is mediated through the concepts that we create to make reality intelligible to us. So that experience of the world gives us these concepts. Concepts are an incredible, immensely complex mix of everything that you've ever heard, felt, thought, uh, experienced in your life things that your mother and father have taught you, things that you've heard from a political party, sermons, experiences you've had, movies you've watched, books you've read, all these experiences have come into your conceptual world, and these conceptual world now goes back into a rotating kind of cycle with what you experience and governs your experience. And so, so a really simple way to illustrate that is the fact that as you look at this music stand in front of me, According to Kant, there is the full possibility, because of the conceptual world we share, that you are able to see this music stand. But it is a conceptual construct of reality which allows you to see and makes it possible for this music stand to appear before you. I'm not trying to get all matrix on you. I'm just saying that if somebody from a pre-industrial tribesman were to come and see, he is absolutely impossible for him to see a music stand. He would see some kind of black and silver object that he does not have the conceptual categories to interpret that experience. So it is not possible for him to see a music stand, to perceive a music stand. He would see it as something as a weapon or something in order to use as a tool, but he would not know what its purpose is because of a conceptual category that we have that that person does not. Reality is conditionally experienced by us through our conceptual grid, our conceptual uh, matrix, whatever you want to call it, so much so that Clifford Garrett is one of the, at least to my mind, important sociologists working in this time, and he wants to move past Darwin and, and calls for uh, an advancement to some of the thought of Max Weber. And so he said, the concept of culture I espouse whose utility in the essays below attempt to demonstrate essentially a semiotic one, and I want to try and unpack that a little bit later. Believing with Max Weber that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun, I take culture to be those webs and the analysis of it, therefore, not as an, exper not an experimental science in search of law, but an interpretive one in search of meaning. And without unpacking that in, in any kind of detailed way, what he's talking about is that you and I live within our mental constructs by which we navigate reality through what he's calling a web of significance, which is the aggregation of every single experience you've had before. Things that you've felt, 
conversations that you've had, things that you've discussed, things that you learned in college, and things that you've learned from friends. I mean, the TV show. All of these things work inside of you to interpret your experience of reality. This is Beatrice Caron, and she is a New York-based paper sculptress. Her creations are absolutely dazzling. This is one of her installations called Egocentricity. She works with negative space, all that sculpted with a scissor out of paper. And it's amazing. And what she's talking about is that at the, at the center, which is ourselves, and this is her mental construct, it's a conceptual world, but it says something about the way that we all live, is that the way that we think and experience our entire world, what we call reality, is a product of all these different vignettes, these little experiences we've had, conversations, things that have happened to us, successes, failures, appointments. And they form our entire web of significance by which we interpret what is happening to us. What you see is not always what is there. And what is there is not always what you see. And I would want to try to demonstrate that. When I say try, is that this has a 50-50% chance of working in this lighting situation. The bottom picture that you see before you and some of you might be too far for this to actually work, but I'm going to hope that it actually does. The bottom picture, I think you would all agree that one is just a flipped image of the other, right? Those are two identical images, but one is just flipped image of the other. Now, I would like for you to do this, and not all of you I know are going to participate, but knowing that, can you look at the top color pattern, and would you focus on that white dot? Just look at that white dot and focus your eyes there for just... 30 seconds. It'll take about that long for your mind to kind of neurolinguistically, neurobiologically kind of rewire itself. Just stare at that white dot in the middle of that color pattern for just about 20 more seconds. You just stare there. You can defeat this by not doing it. That's completely okay, but please don't. Just look at that white dot for 10 more seconds. Look at that white dot, the upper white dot for 10 seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Now, would you switch to the bottom picture and look at the white dot at the middle of that bottom picture? Anything happened there? By the blank looks on your faces, I'm guessing it did not. <laughs> I knew that in this, in this lighting situation, this only had a 50, 50% at best chance of working. If this actually succeeded, if you were in any kind of darkened situation, what would have happened is that your visual field of left and right eye would have actually acclimated itself to that color pattern so that when you look back, that identical image would not have looked identical to you at all. And what it would have seemed much more blue and much more saturated than the other. Please take my word for that on faith. Not what you, what you see is not what, always what you believe, and what you believe is not always what you see. Take this picture, for instance. It's a photograph of a nice little young couple. That is an experience. It's something that you could see, something that maybe much, someone might show you on an iPod or, or, or an iPad and say, this is kind of some people that I know. This is a concept now, Abercrombie and Fitch. And this person, the CEO of Abercrombie and Fitch, has gotten himself into a tremendous amount of trouble because they have stopped carrying plus-size <laughs> outfits at their, at their uh, company. And this is in an attempt because he wants to brand Abercrombie as Fitch as saying that we only sell to people who are thin and cool. That picture is just a picture. It's an experience. You put a concept over that, and all of a sudden it's a worldview. 
It is the people who absorb that image and absorb that conceptual grid and it influences their entire inhabitation of existence. The way that they see people is now all of a sudden perceptually altered in the way that that color pattern is able to change your perceptual field. It creates what Roland Barthes calls mythologies so that the world is full of mythologies of what is successful, what is beautiful, what is good. And music, for me, has always been one of the greatest and most interesting, complex mode of these phenomena. So that if you think about what music is, switching the perception from what you see to what you hear. Music, if you think about what music is, is just a bunch, a sequence of pulses in varying pitch and duration over different intervals of time. It's all that music is. It's just noise. And yet when it's composed in the right way, with the right concepts, it can do absolutely extraordinary things. This piece is from Debussy and from Reverie. vibrations in the air and if we were nothing but biology if we were nothing but just organisms that are created for survival of the fittest that all that would ever be and yet there's something in the capacity that people have uniquely of all of God's creations that's able to interpret that in certain conceptual ways as to have that have a, what's called a transporting effect that moves us and we start to think about different experiences that we've had of love of peace of serenity. For me, I listen to that piece, it's just noise. And instantly, because of the conceptual grid by which I've been socialized, I'm transported to the turn of the century France. I really feel that when I listen to the music. take you to 1950s New York. Those are just impulses of music. That's all they are. It is a conceptual framework which allows you to interpret that, allows you to think about that, and allow it to move you. And now for a slightly different change of pace. <laughs> 1990s race riots in L.A., now that's, again, it's just a bank of noise, and, part, and partly, I have to admit, I, I put that in there just to, you know, maybe to wake you guys up if any of you were falling asleep at this point. It is that Rage Against the Machine are as much political outfit as they are rockers and rappers, actually. They're trying to make statements in sound, and it is the ability that we have to put concepts to experience uniquely as human beings, which allows us to not just experience reality. Nobody in the world, secular, Christian, atheist, deist, spiritualist, nobody in the world experiences reality in a perfectly neutral way. Only God himself is able to experience first order reality as he's created it. All of us in our finiteness, that we only have our limited experience by which we can interpret reality. Experience an interpreted reality. And let me give you one last illustration of that as we put images and music together. 
This is a fairly common experience that at the end of a long day, I might just kind of toss my keys on the bed. It's fairly nothing really to that, actually. You just put the music just a little bit. Put some music to that, and all of a sudden... Now something dramatic has happened. It's the same image, it's the same common experience, but put a little bit of Skrillex next to that, and now something weird and something important has taken its occurrence. Our experiences are filtered. What we think is important, what we attend to, what grabs our attention, what completely we ignore and dismiss, it is a product of our conceptual grid by which we interpret our experiences. And that's true for all of us. Maybe just two more real quick as far as in senses. Again, what does opulence and success smells like? It smells like Chanel Number no. 5 or Eternity or whatever other it is or Dolce Cabana. The thing is, is that when if you were to smell that fragrance, it's just the smell, it all it is, tickling of your olfactory senses, packaged in a conceptual framework. Now, all of a sudden, it is a mythology of the good life, as far as drink is concerned. This is what Roland Berg calls a totem drink. Because in the way that French have wine, in the way that the British have the refinement of tea for Americans, it's coffee. And you understand the way that an American drinks coffee is not the same way that an Italian drinks coffee because the mythologies are different. The ethnic nationality of mythologies are different. In Italy, when somebody drinks a cup of espresso, it's at a cafe someplace, usually with some, maybe some fine cheese, maybe right after a glass of wine, actually. And then as you're drinking this, you're experiencing life and enjoying the coffee. The totem drink of America as coffee means that this is usually somebody who has already been awake for 24, 25 hours at a Starbucks, slaving away at the next great invention, keeping himself awake with coffee. And as he drinks that coffee, he is part of a solidarity of people and a national ethos of advancement and progress and can-do attitude. It's not just a cup of coffee so that all of our senses our perceptions, what we see, what we hear, what we feel and touch, the touch of feel of cottons, the touch of our life or whatever that thing is, what we drink, what we smell, what we take in through the senses is never neutral. It is coordinated by a neutral grid, by a, a, a conceptual grid. Now, I'm going to deconstruct this for a moment and, and hope that it may be helpful to you to have a little bit of analysis on on what this occurs in a little bit more of a technical way. Let me just talk real quickly about speech act theory and not get into these old dead people. Uh, one of them's not dead. <laughs> speech act theory is a really interesting thing. That, that speech has what's been identified as a locution, which is basically mean that speech says something which is absolutely obvious. But what speech act theory is really trying to get across in, in, the, in the world, and it's been kind of widely uh, established at this point, is that speech not only has a locution, it also has an elocution. And that means that speech not only says something, that it does something. Words are never just words, or rarely so. The words do something. They are enabled to enact change. It's an immense, immense ability by which the entire foundations of civilization, East and West, are built upon. So these words, the right to bear arms, they are not just words on a piece of paper. They are matters of life and death. And what gets settled in the courtroom as far as to their interpretation will affect what happens on the streets of our cities. Those words and the power that they have to enact things. Words communicate and they do things with them. What I was fascinated by is there was a man named Paul Ricoeur and his philosophy because he came along and he said in a book called Text to Action, 
is not just that words have do things, but he says that actions also not to have an, an illocution, which means that they do something. And that was no big surprise that actions do something. But he reversed something which is really foundational for me. He said actions not only do something, but they also have a locution, meaning that actions also say things. So that if there's such a thing as a speech act, there's such a thing as an act speech, meaning that not only do we communicate by means of our words, but we communicate by the means of what we act and do. And not just simply in terms of gestures, but somebody can watch and observe your life, and your life speaks. We are speaking into each other's lives, not only by virtue of what we speak in conversation, but by the manner of what you do. What, the way that you live your life, the way that you spend your money, your time, your resources, your actions, they have a necessary influence in this web of significance that is created around you. It's an immensely powerful force. So that words do things and communicate things, but so do actions in our world in these webs of significance that gets created. And I'll, I'll skip that quote by William Lewis Clark. But what he's talking about is that there is a communication system in the entire world. And the thing is, is that if we ever think that the world is meaningless, that life has no meaning, it is absolutely a dullness of our senses in which, and our conceptual framework, which we don't understand, that the entire universe around us actually speaks. And a branch of linguistics, linguistic studies, not only the words and actions, but also looks at the setting so that every single part of our setting in which we live, the objects, the location, the social roles, the economic, political situations, all of these have a power to communicate and be part of our conceptual grid in which we interpret the universe around us. Let me skip these people for a second and just go directly to Jesus. Jesus, when he spoke to the woman at the well, there was not just the words that he was saying, but there was the entire world in which he was saying those things. The time of day that he chose, the fact that he was in Samaria, the ethnicity that she was a Samaritan, he was a Jew, she was a female, he was a male, he was somebody that was a holy person, she was a woman of ill repute. Every single one of those factors spoke, and most of all what spoke in that scene in Samaria was that there is a well of water, which he was saying that there is something here which is symbolic that signifies something that is so much greater. And yet... All she could see was the fact that this was just water. And when he is offering her a water that will never, ever be, need to be replenished, that is self-replenishing, her only thoughts were just, where can I get this water? And it was a failure in that experience of hers to understand the infinitely larger conceptual world in which Jesus was inviting her to which makes me think again and again that Vincent van Gogh was essentially correct, that when he reveals a world that is so much greater and bigger and that everything in the world signifies things and these words that I've been kind of throwing around, signification and significance, they have at their root this word sign and this word sign and also in Greek and Latin, semiosis and the semioticos, it basically means something very simple is that there are things which on the surface of it is just an experience. It's just the thing, just the object in and of itself. 
but that objects are designed to point beyond themselves to things that are greater than themselves. And we all navigate our world in this way. And it's the way that we know to stop at a stop sign and go at a, at a, at when the light turns green. And so that AKM Adam is actually the first Christian, that, or you know, that at least that I know of, that even comes close to being evangelical that I'm quoting from. He's working off of actually some of the semiotic theory of a woman named Julia Castillo, who's absolutely uh, brilliant in this. But he's saying a signifying practice of biblical theology will conduct its textual exploration toward the end of submitting visible, tangible, audible, effectual claims concerning the Bible's importance for our lives. It is a way of living that directly enters into the ocean of signification that encompasses us. I think I cried as I read those words in a pretty dense theological volume because what he's talking about that we are immersed in a world of signs, of things that are speaking meaningfully and yet sometimes our lives seem so incredibly empty and so incredibly barren and void of meaning and we are not yet learning rightly how to read the signs of the world around us in proper conceptual grids. It is a conceptual poverty in which we live in in some ways. This painting is famous and hangs at the Met of Starry, Starry Night. And it is a revelation, I think, of the world that is an ocean of signification, coursing with the creative energies of God and pulsing with a divine and semiotic light. There is more to this world than what we could ever possibly think or imagine if we have eyes to see. And our artists in some ways are those people who are the canaries in the cold mines who have not yet so detached and so inured themselves and so defend themselves of the experience that is all around us so that many times they are capable of a greater perceptual density and a more penetrating gaze. And so that you all understand that many people could look on that same field in France and not see what Van Gogh saw. Many people would be walking around and seeing the same dirt and the same church I've passed by at the same time with those same hills and there are those stars. I don't even notice them anymore. And yet, when Van Gogh looks at that starry field, it speaks to him. It communicates something which is so infinitely beyond and transcendent and it elevates him and he's able to paint that in a portrait which we can see a little bit life through his eyes. The great musicians are doing the same thing, inviting us to hear through their ears. I'm going to make an illustration, which I rarely do, for the benefit of one person in this room. And there's uh, this group called Rush, which only t- two of us in this room even know who they are, actually. <laughs> and, and they have this great song called YYZ, and none of you know even know who that is. Well, is. Many of you were not born when this band was actually popular. And yet, so this, this, there's this, just this, this group of trio of Canadian musicians, and they're walking around, and all of a sudden, they hear like, it's Morse code actually being tapped out someplace. And all of a sudden, somebody would not even notice that. Somebody else is just tapping. It's just all it is is noise, actually. And yet, because of their greater conceptual grid and their power of perception, auditory perception, that becomes one of the most important, and in the history of rock and roll music, actually one of the most important, the important songs, actually. It's an amazing song. They create an entire song out of that. To them, that is music. It communicates. It speaks. Because a greater conceptual grid in which that is able to occupy. 
And so it shows us something of the poverty of the way that we engage and experience the world. Atheists and secularists know this, actually, to a sense. What I want to unfold, though, is for us who are Christian, is that the case is even more profound and more severe. This ocean of signification in which we are daily swimming, bathing, navigating in, which allows us to swim out to far banks of experience which are absolutely glorious in creation, even a fallen one, is we don't know how to swim. We don't know what water is. We still feel like it's just a functional thing that we have to use. And we are not able to think in greater symbolic, signifying modes of experience and inhabitation. It is what God daily invites us to every single time we open the pages of the Bible, which is why the thinness of scripture reading and sometimes of scripture study is to mine it for propositions that say, well, okay, well, that means this morality, and it means this, I should do this. This is these one-to-one simple correlations when the entire arc of scripture is designed not to do that. We treat it as if God gave to us a theological volume for which to us to analyze in some detached way when what the scriptures are inviting us is to be able to see reality through the eyes of God. To see the greatness, the glory, the beauty, the mercy, the compassion, the fullness of all that He has created. It is to train our vision, our ears, our tactile senses to experience reality in a vastly different way in the way that people who have never come in contact with theology or scripture. And this ocean of signification because exists because in the beginning, the way that the world was created was not simply by mechanistic constructions of simple laws of the physical universe, which absolutely exist. There has been something so profound that happened at the dawn of time, which is that God spoke which means that every single experience, object, and thing in the entire created universe is still ringing with the echoes of God's speech if we have ears to hear it. And God said, and everything was created, which means that the entire world around us, our entire reality, is God's speech act. He spoke and it was every single thing in the universe. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. Meaning that it is not only the world, it is not only God's speech act, it is God's act speech. That if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we ought to be able to not only read our Bibles correctly, but read our lives correctly, read our world correctly, so that everything that comes to us in movies, in books, relationships, conversations, times over dinner, playing with your children, picnics, every single thing of your entire world has something to say about God and who He is and His character and His grace and His overabundant fullness, which has created all things, which is a simpler way to say that this ocean of signification exists because the eschatological knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the seas. We are daily swimming in significations of God so that every single thing in our lives is meant to bring us closer into our experience of God. It is an ocean of signification to which we are many times deaf, dumb, and blind. 
And there's another message which explores that, but let me just open that up a little bit by putting this spatial axis now on a temporal one, and so that in God's redemptive plan that begins with creation, the fall, and then on into consummation, there is a single word of truth by which God has spoken everything into existence. This is reality as God daily perceives it. So that every single word, every single action, object, and place that you have ever been at, touched, felt, drunk, spoken of, heard, thought, felt, was meant to speak and point to God. Every, every single thing. Not this church has been purposely constructed in order to point to God. It's the reason why we have so much negative space here. Why in the world? Nobody is this tall. This is to say that there is more here than just you, and this is God's house. This is God's world. This is God's universe. Why in the entire universe is He created so infinitely large and vast and glorious? Why are the stars so far away? Nobody's that big. It is to speak to us that every time we behold the stars, that there is more than just our small, narrow lives, which we can only sometimes perceive the pinhole of our minute microscopic perceptual grid. The reason why that occurs so often is because of an act of deceit of the enemy by which this word of truth has been countervailed by a lie so that every word, action, object, and place has been unanchored and untethered from its signifying power to God so that now it has become a parenthesis and ellipsis by which it is a you-fill-in-the-blank world. This is exactly the craft in which the enemy works. And in this lie, we exchange the truth of God, which is everything is to His glory and to His worship, so that the daily experience of life, not just in church, but 24-7, ought to be of a rapture, even though broken one, of that we are experiencing God in the fullness of every single thing in the totality of our existence. And we do not. Because we exchange that truth for this lie, that this Meal is just a meal which I worked for functionally and then was bought at a grocery store and prepared. It's just a meal. It doesn't mean anything. Or maybe it just means dinner with friends. Maybe it just means some a pleasure that I get from this the gratification of my taste buds and senses. And yet the ultimately signifying power of that meal is that this is God's goodness to you that without fail... I will not allow my beloved to go hungry. It didn't just arrive here. It was created by my hands for you as gift. Nobody could create wheat or, or food if it were not first created by God. It is a signifying power. It is the reason why for thousands of years Christians have established the tradition of before meal saying grace. This didn't just happen. It was not created by my grocer or the farmer. The earth and its yield of abundance was created at Eden to signify that God is always good. And sunshine and rain and season by season, harvest and sowing, God will be faithful to us. It is a symbol of that. So if you have been nourished daily every single day, every single meal is an act of, not sacramentally, but it is an act semiotically 
of communion. It is the tangible, physical, eatable expression of God's goodness and faithfulness and mercy and grace to you. It is a different way of inhabiting the world in which God invites us to. So as I end, move to a close, let me go back to our friend. Actually, let me finish this, actually, this grid, which I don't have time to unpack. A life of worship we transform into a life of idolatry. So that when everything was meant to be an icon pointing to God, we treat it as idols pointing to either nothing more than itself or something in which the conceptual patterns of the world has trained us to cherish and to worship. And it is in the fullness of time which Christ is sent and the Savior is given to us to move us back into the ultimate signifying power of God as every single thing that he lived and did. He himself, it becomes a living pointer, an arrow to all that God is. And it is our communion with Christ that ultimately brings us back to this. That's actually a different message, so let me actually move to kind of the end of this one. I'm going to go back to Kant, actually. So Kant says this. So Kant says, let me me choose this one more time. So the possibility, and please hear what he bracketed, because he's dead serious about this. The possibility, and therefore also, and especially the impossibility, of a phenomenon, something that you perceive, is ordered by the measure of a power of knowing that is concretely the measure of the play of experience and of the concept in a finite mind. The possibility, and especially the impossibility, of what you see when you see, what you hear when you hear, is governed by the concepts which you have allowed yourself to absorb and become part of your identity, so that when you see all things, you interpret it in a certain way. So that some things are possible to appear to you, and some things are absolutely impossible. Someone could be here in the context of worship, and it would be utterly impossible for them to experience God. And other people, when you come here in the same way, there is a possibility of a vastly greater experience that occurs. And it is because of these concepts and experience. And so, really quick, just to finish this thought off, actually, kind of the bookend of where I started. So Kant, in a lot of, lot of words that he wrote in German, comes to privilege concepts over experience. And he says that concepts are actually are more important than experience, that concepts actually encompass experience because of this simple fact. He says that experience is extremely limited because there is only a limitation of things which you can experience. You can experience a music podium, you can experience food, you can experience music, but you cannot experience mathematics or physics. These are concepts. And so Kant, and probably many of us, are trained in a Western educational system that concepts are the key to life, actually. That concepts are greater than experience. There are concepts that he is saying that exceed our experience. You cannot bump into mathematical formulas. They exist in pure concept, what he calls an intellectual idea. My interest in phenomenology is because, actually, largely part of because of the work of this man, Jean-Luc Marion, and he is, uh, at least to my mind, one of the most important philosophers of our time, actually currently working. He taught for quite a while at the Sorbonne and then traded up to the University of Chicago. <laughs> and 
when I first started to, to read him, I thought this guy is so incredibly hard to understand. I mean, even reading people that are of different philosophies, I thought this, this person is really difficult, I thought. And so then I was so excited that when I got, went on YouTube and I found that he actually had uh, some videos of some of his lectures on, and in English. So I thought, this is fantastic. And so I, I, I got, even got a program that allowed me to download this so I could keep this forever, that kind of a thing. And so I'm so excited after class to open up this YouTube you know, video and watch it, hear him lecture. And I thought, this will help me because I can get a sense of the man lecturing this in person, you know, video. And he starts to speak in this impenetrable French accent. I knew he was speaking English because the words were English, but it's as if you took English and you put it into a blender and all the consonants were smoothed out and it become this, this kind of this smoothie of, of uh, and they had to get out in front of And I'm thinking, well, you were not hard enough to understand in English, you know, just like when I read you before. And so actually, I'm working with a French tutor so I can actually read him properly over the summer, which is going to be fun. I love this man because of this is because and it, he's not working actually as as a as a theologian actually he doesn't like the term he's a philosopher actually but what he is doing is an inversion since the few hundred years since Kant which I think is actually pretty profound Kant said that because of these things that these concepts are, are in excess of our experience that concepts are greater than our experience now this can be so easily misheard and I don't have time to qualify it so I just won't he says an equivalence of determination will mean something of the reverse. And so he talks about something which he calls saturated phenomenon. Saturated phenomenon is what he talks about a phenomenology of givenness in excess. You know, all those fancy words are talking about is simply this. That in an equivalence of determination means that if there are concepts that are in excess of experience, there are experiences that are in excess of concepts. And what that means is excess of experience and concepts is that if there are some concepts which are too big like mathematics and physics and the entire conceptual world that we learn in education if they are too if they if there are if that is the container for and if that is there are too big for our experiences he says are there not experiences that are too big for our concepts he doesn't say like that he says it in a much more kind of refined French manner are there not there are certain experiences, which he calls saturated phenomenon, which are in excess of the smallness of the constraints of our concepts. They exceed our conceptual world. And if our conceptual world by which we interpret all of existence has been so trained and constrained by the parameters of secular existence, it will be impossible for us to perceive God who is actively at work in every single situation of our lives. I happen to believe that the dark nights of our souls in which God removes His presence and hides His face for a time are extremely rare in the experience of most Christians' lives. Meaning, that they occur in every Christian's life, but not that often. They are to be unique seasons of training which are brackets from a larger experience of God which God intended. And that the bigger problem is not that God is hiding his face from us, but we are hiding our face from God, our identity by which we are able to perceive things correctly. So that in Isaiah 40, and I'll just go through this passage quickly, and just, just to kind of put it in front of you. What this passage in the situation of Israel was that Israel had thought that God had fled the scene, 
Where in the world is God when we are being conquered by Babylon, Assyria? We need to then run to Egypt. And so in the entire perceptual world of King Ahaz is he is thinking that we need somehow to find some way out of this military economic plight that we have found ourselves in but arrayed by these greater powers because God has completely evacuated our scenario, our situation. Babylon is powerful, so powerful. Assyria is so powerful. God is nowhere to be seen. So Isaiah arranges a meeting with King Ahaz and says, meet me by the waterworks of the city. And as Ahaz looks at the water, just like the woman in Samaria, all he sees is the waterworks that they will need in order to sustain them physically during the siege. And that is in his entire perceptual grid for the water. All water is for him is economic and military. That's the entire way that he is seeing those waterworks of the city. And Isaiah is desperately trying to open his eyes and saying, may the king's eyes be opened. That these are like the waters of Shiloam. They are the waters that speak to you of God's enduring faithfulness of in your life if you have but eyes to see. Isaiah's complaint, the people of Israel's complaint in Isaiah is that they think that God is no longer a part of their lives, that God has wearied of their disobedience and rebellion. And in verse 26, Isaiah is speaking to his people Israel. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When he's saying, lift your eyes to the stars, he's saying, your entire perceptual field and conceptual experience is being looked at at the pinhole of your present suffering. That's all that you can see. And he's saying, lift your eyes up and say and understand the reason you cannot see God is not because that he, there is a lack of God in your life. There is an excess which is so big and vast and so runs out of the boundaries of your small conceptions that he is too big for you to see, not too small. And so he speaks. Why do you say, O oh Jacob, and complain, O oh Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. God does not see me. God does not care. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's not like you. He does not grow weary or tired. He, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And it's understanding. Please, no one can fathom. Please, oh Israel, don't say that God has fled the scene. You are the one fleeing from Him. Do not say that I understand everything about the situation because I am a mature, well-educated adult who completely knows what to do and what can and cannot be done in this situation. I know what is possible and what is impossible. And as they're saying, you've bracketed God entirely out of the situation and your entire conception of what is possible and what is impossible is being filtered by a framework that is far too small for God. He is not lacking in your life. He is always, always in excess. 
when you are there in the morning and you cannot hear God, cannot see God, it's not because God is not there. All of a sudden, God is hiding His face from you or, or drifted far away someplace else or tired of your sins and your rebellions. It is that His ways are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth, meaning that there are things that He is doing actively in your life in love and compassion and care, which is not visible to your finite mind. He is infinite, infinite. This idea of saturated phenomenon has been the way that I've come to understand my own personal spiritual life. God is sometimes the most active in the very scene in which I think He has fled, which He has evacuated. And when I sense that emptiness, that lack of God, I've come to reconfigure and recalibrate my sense of scale and scope. And I come to understand at those precise moments of emptiness, it's not because that God is not there or there is a lack of God. It's that God is doing something so much bigger, richer, and greater. And my scope is too limited. Why not now? Or I can wait till next week or next year at most. That's, that's all I can think of. And yet, God is working in your life and the greatest things He's wanting to do that stretch out from the context of your 50, 60, 70, 80, and then on into eternity. Do not be too quick to say, I know what is possible and what is impossible. Those words are odious in the ears of one who can do all things. And so I want to close and just, uh, this is uh, it's a, just a, another YouTube video. Um, and this is a, a woman in South Truman. She's actually a, a very devout believer as a Christian. And, and uh, I want to just kind of offer this to you as a perceptual awakening of what occurs during moments of perceptual awakening. There, there, at some, one of these days, if I get to come back, I'd like to kind of maybe walk you through, if, if I could, a little bit of actually how these perceptual awakenings occur. It's what I'm devoting my life to actually working out. But just to kind of put this into your minds, this is what perceptual awakening looks like. This, this woman who was born deaf, and so she couldn't hear, and she doesn't even know what sound sounds like, actually. And I, I said this before, but to me this is an amazingly, amazingly profound illustration of all of our lives. Because deaf people have a fascinating relationship with sound. And when they hear music, they gravitate to it, which is absolutely ironic because they can't hear it. They, have no, they can't hear it. There, there's no relationship to it. And yet, they'll put their hand by a speaker. They want so much this thing that because they know it's around them, they innately know that it's not that sound doesn't exist. Not that the music doesn't exist. It's that I can't hear it, but it's all around me. I live in a world that is replete with birds singing and doorbells ringing, people talking, and all this world of sound is going around me. I know it is. I just can't, I can't hear it. This is uh, through a technological achievement where... They are able to put a cochlear implant. And if you kind of get into this, this is amazing because there's these documentaries about the deaf community, how so many people are against, in the deaf community, in these, these communities of deaf people, are against these cochlear implants because they hate it when, and some people, I'm, not, I'm just saying some people in this community, hate it when somebody is going to leave their conceptual world of the deaf because they've created their entire world around their deafness. What if we waited upon God in faith and trust and know that there's always more than what the world tells us is possible and impossible? 
What if we ordered the conceptions of our mind and our community into an infinitely larger scope and field, which only God, in the end, can understand and fathom? And what if we, in faith, believed and trusted Him beyond our own sight, our own vision, our own perceptions, and allow Him to crack open our perceptual fields and to see God who is always, always present and at work in our lives, especially in those times when you feel at least. God of faithfulness, God of glory and might and all wisdom, would you join me in prayer? And I pray this, this verse of Philippians, God, over this church and this community, Father, that God, that you who can do immeasurably more than we can think or imagine, that, Father, that you would continue to work by the power of your Holy Spirit in communion with Christ would allow us in that communion, Father, to so feel as he felt, to so see as he saw, to so hear as he heard. That the way that Jesus, that when you walk this world and you saw all things speak of your Father's glory, that in our communion and our union with you in the Spirit, that we ourselves be given the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the eyes of Christ and the ears of Christ. Would you awaken us, God, to see the world in greater measure in the way that you have created it for your glory and your goodness. For we say all these things, O God, in Christ Jesus' name.